Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. everyone welcome back to the next episode of the no low ballers podcast it's a new show that we've got with go wild we are sponsored by gunbroker.com i'm logan medish of high caliber history your host so we've got the go wild crew with us here we've got alan from gunbroker.com um, we're going to talk about all sorts of really interesting things uh, in all of the episodes of this show. We'll talk about some stuff that maybe you know a little bit about, some things that maybe you don't. Uh, hopefully we're going to throw some things your way and you'll learn something along the way. Maybe it'll even spark an interest and next thing you know, you've got yourself a gunbroker.com profile and you're spending money and it's always a good thing, right? Wives are going to hate this yeah, show. I was about to wives. say, we are <laughs> yes. not responsible for your wives. <laughs> That's right. For an extra $5, we will send you a receipt for the price that you told your wife that's that right. you actually paid for it. Yeah, That's a new feature you guys are working on at GunBroker.com, right? Oh, I've, I've seen the stats. Trust me, there are plenty of wives shopping on GunBroker.com. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And they're, they're buying, not selling. That's the important oh, thing. Ooh, very important <laughs> thing. Like, it's like an edition. It says spousal receipt, and you just get charged five bucks, and it sends you a separate email. Yep. I like that. You can just forward it right over to her. Like, look, honey. Absolutely. It's 25% of the value. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's the old joke in the collector world is I, I really hope when I die, my wife doesn't sell my guns for what I told her I paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and 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 that kind of holds true with with all the stuff that we're going to talk about today, whether you're a gun collector or you're a hunter, uh, you know, you've you've chances are you've got a gun that you love taking in the field and maybe you spent a little bit more for it than you should have. And there may be a variety of different reasons that you did that. Um, you know, maybe it's, it's something that reminded you of a gun that your granddad had when he hunted or, or, uh, it's, it's, you've always wanted one of those classic pieces, you know? So there's, there's all sorts of tradition and heritage that runs in the hunting world. Right. Um, and a lot of that is tied to the firearms that we take into the field with us. And so we're going to talk about old school hunting today. We're going to talk about hunting in the depression era, um, and you know, we were talking before we started rolling here, Brad, you mentioned, you're like, the depression was almost a hundred years ago now. Kind of crazy. Um, Cause I grew up talking to my grandfather about the depression and how hard it was on him and, yeah. you know, and him telling me stories about his father hunting in this era. And, uh, it's, it's funny. Cause like, I, I've thought a lot about this, like when I grew up, how World War II was only like 40 years ago for mm -hmm. me. Um, and now, you know, look at my kids and how like it, it's become it's become like like to my kids, kids, it'll be like this civil war. Like, you yeah, know, it's right. like all the, it blows my mind 
Uh, it's like the same thing that happens to me when I think about how Nirvana is now classic rock. <laughs> I know. <man. laughs> oh, yeah. I, I yeah. think I just heard my yeah. hip pop. <laughs> yeah. I was giving my dad crap this weekend, actually, saying, so if the music that I listen to is now considered classic rock, does that mean your stuff, the Zeppelin, and is right. that oldies now? Yeah. Like, what, classical. classical. It's classical. Oh, classical. <laughs> so then what does that make Beethoven? I don't, uh, know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, Brad, my, my family, we just because of uh, how late, both my wife and my family's, um, just had kids later in their late so we've got a, a jump in generation so for my grandparents that they were living during the depression so for us it, it doesn't seem like it's that far back but you know it's it, it's it's staggering yeah we got firsthand tales of this stuff and then i know you and i and I, alan i don't know if you read as much about it but like you and i've talked even recently about like the um you know teddy roosevelt and mm-hmm. i was talking to you about the 50 caliber gun that he was gifted where, where did you say that gun is now? that's actually at the fraser just down just, the road that's here. right just here in little i've got to go see that I did, need you, to go did down you know there. his 50 cal is there well he was talking about it yesterday i haven't been though i haven't either it's a 450 500 so it's not okay. quite 50 cal but it, it is it is a big Didn't more dangerous that, game rifle that's the engraved one that they gave him yep. as a, yeah okay and and do you remember the value of that when they gave it to him at that time <sighs> Oh, not off the top of my head. I mean, but it was, I think Very it was like, expensive. it was like tens of thousands of pounds yeah. uh, in 1909 yeah. when he got the gun. They, they, there was a whole group of people that fundraised yep. to, you know, it wasn't just like one wealthy benefactor, you know, paid Holland and Holland to make this gun. Yeah. A whole group of people was like, yeah, I'll chip in five pounds and 10 pounds or whatever to make this gun for Teddy Roosevelt. But what's interesting is I think with the compression of time, people now kind of look back like we we know there was this era of market hunters that he combated mm-hmm. and, and honestly in some ways was a part of it first yep. uh, and and mm-hmm. over time saw the era of his ways um and and you know really worked towards fixing that saving our our public lands but i i feel like we're getting to a point where the great depression era hunters that we're going to talk about are kind of getting it's almost like so far ago that there's not this clear delineation of like these time periods were very different for hunting. Right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you can speak to a little bit of that. I, I took down a couple notes because I wanted to make sure that we like before we even dive too deep, we draw a delineation of this wasn't the the market hunting yeah. uh, that wiped out wild game. Right. Or or wild birds, especially. Yeah. We're not yeah. talking about punt guns. Here. No, no. no. Yeah. It's it's very different. You know, the. Um, I wanted to make sure I had the dates, but the Lacey Act was 1900, mm-hmm. and there's been uh, a lot of amendments to it since then. But then the um, Federal Meat Inspection Act, which was the one that regulated meat testing, it was 1906. So this is a full generation before the Great Depression. Yeah. So hunting is well regulated at that point. I think it's worth calling out yes. uh, because really we're talking about subsistence hunting. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, for your family. Yes. This is not, I, I wanted to draw that line yeah. really clear for anybody that's listening. Cause I, again, you know, younger generation, if we have 20 year olds listening to this, you're still very far removed from this. They may not have had their grandparents tell them about this, or maybe they haven't read about it. Like we've, we've wanted to talk about. So, right. uh, you know, Logan, I'll kind of hand it over to you to kind of go through some of your talking points here, but I just I think it's worth calling that out before we dive in. Yeah, yeah. The, the North American model was very well established and in place by this That's point. That's right. So yep. we're, we're looking at literally, and these aren't the people who, you know, took them out, took your kid out hunting for fun like we do now to build that, you know, that time-tested uh, hand-me-down of information and knowledge. It, it literally was, if we want to eat on Sunday, we got to go hunting on Saturday. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, you know, we've, we've got a, a handful of guns here that, that are all very familiar to, to all of us today and, and to, you know, tons of hunters still today, but they're guns that 
go back and, and have huge traditions that for some of these guns were in place even before the Depression era. You know, they were tried and true designs when they got to them. Um, and so, you know, for, for example, we'll start here with, with the Winchester 1894, uh, which, of course, you know, uh, as the name implies, you know, came out in 1894. So, you know, by the time the stock market crashes, you know, in 29, you know, this, this gun is already, the design is decades Pro old. Proven go-to. Right. Yeah. It is a tried and true, you know, I mean, it's, oh, granddad's old 3030, you know, like it, it was his granddad's 3030 beforehand, you know. Well, and these were prevalent on the market then too, and they were affordable because this was, I mean, in the day, this was kind of the, the M4 of its time. You know, it was, it was, the, it was a military grade firearm. The cavalry carried it. The army carried variants of it. Um, by that point, the 1900s, they'd moved on to, to Springfield and other bolt action rifles. Um, so these were on marketplaces all over the place. They're, they're relatively cheap. They're relatively reliable. Yep. Um, by that point you had tons of Smith, so you could get them worked on relatively easily. So, um, you know, it was a common, ha common, uh, firearm you'd find in households at that time. Yep. And it's a 30, 30. This particular one is, yep, mm -hmm, yep, which I mean is the quintessential deer cartridge right. mm -hmm. of all time, First right? First deer. First deer, yeah, yep. okay, very cool. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the 3030 is, is a tried and true cartridge, you know, but but when it came out, I mean, it was it was a game changer, you know. It, it was, uh, we're, we're into the smokeless powder era now, you know, which is a huge step forward uh, for hunters, um, and, and the 94 was, was really what gave it that kick, what really helped it take off. I mean, there's no more classic pairing than a Winchester 1894 in 3030, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, they made them in all sorts of different calibers and they made them in different barrel lengths. Uh, you know, this is a carbine length. They made them uh, rifle length and musket length. Um, but you know, quintessential deer gun for running through the woods, carbine length, Winchester 1894 in 3030. You know, that does, uh, you know, we kind of talking about legacy things being handed down we see on go wild a bunch of people of kids still talking about grandpa's 3030 mm -hmm. i wonder at what point that'll start to shift if we're not already seeing it but, mm -hmm. I, but we still see a lot of people hunting with 3030s mm -hmm. and, and a lot of them are older guns the legacy guns that have yep. been kind of handed down yeah and you know you think of a dad you you, know, you got an old beater gun that your kid's going to go out and might maybe beat it up that's the gun you might want to give to them not necessarily looking at these guns as antiques yet but it'll be interesting to see you know, we the you got this six five crowd that's kind of forming. You talk about like the gun for Whitetail right. mm -hmm. rounds picked up a lot of popularity within the Whitetail space. It'll be interesting to see like this shift over the next probably twenty years. Right. To see like when I'm teaching my kid, I probably will not use a thirty thirty to kind of teach them. Right. Right. Like, it's just a little bit different of a time period. The platform got a little bit of a kick in the pants about. 10 or 15 years ago when Hornaday came out with their lever evolution round. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, because of the tubular magazine, you had to have round nose or soft nose ammunition, and that was really starting to become restrictive on what you could hunt with it. So Hornaday's introduction of that polymer-tipped cartridge kind of gave these guns new life. Um, so, you know, right now in 3030, 35 rem, they're still relatively viable. Uh, you know, I would probably make the case today that 270 is probably taking over as that generational, yeah. mm -hmm. you yeah. know, thanks Jack O'Connor on that one, but it, it's kind of the, um, the new generational yep. deer cartridge, but these, these guns just don't go away. These yeah. things are around and there's just, there's just something about it. I, I, the, the meme on social the other day was, you know, before you pick up a lever gun, it's just a guy. And then the minute you're holding a lever gun, you turn into rip from Yellowstone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just some, there's just something about a lever gun. Yeah. There really is. There really is. There's just so much history in them and. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said that there's still such a very viable market mm -hmm. 
for brand new lever guns. I mean, look what Henry has done. They've built, you know, Big a, resurgence. a huge mm-hmm. resurgence, you know, and Marlin. And, you know, now that, that they've been purchased by Ruger and, and they've. And repositioned as tactical, too. Right. Dan, Dan has a tactical 3030. The, the dark series. Yeah. Yep. yep. And I've, I've got a Henry X model. Um, that's, you know, it's all black polymer furniture. Yeah. It's threaded for a 30 caliber can. You know, I, I joke, I'm like, this is what Teddy Roosevelt would have hunted with <laughs> yeah. if he had had it, you know, and that's, and that's not a far stretch because he had a Winchester 94 that was threaded mm-hmm. for a suppressor. He used it at Sagamore Hill, uh, you know, to, to shoot up there quietly and take care of the, the game animals, you know, the small game animals that were terrorizing the property up there so that he didn't piss off his big wig neighbors, you know, with names like DuPont and Rockefeller yeah. You know, you, you want to shoot quietly up there. And so, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, Teddy would be like, wait a minute, this X model and I can put a can on it. Be like, yes, bully. You know, yeah. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah the purist in me saw those come out and kind of cringed a little bit. But one uh, a couple of years ago at Media Day at the range, it shot um, one of the companies I was there with. We had a, um, a Henry lever gun with a rail, the big loop, the tactical buttstock and a can on it with a big old red dot. That thing is so much fun to shoot. Oh mm-hmm. my god, I was I, my, my opinion changed in a heartbeat. It, it it took you know the again something about a lever gun, but added a level of fun to it. That's yep. just a lot of fun. I, I actually killed that bear with a lever gun in December. And Did it, you? It, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I didn't think about the fact of how popular that gun would be with the bear hunters. Now most of them use pistols, but you sure. get a guy coming in for a first time. It, it's short, it's compressed. You know, we're we're in Appalachia with Laurel and you know everything, and I'm I'm like this is probably very much how uh, you know. Uh, Going back to what 1894, you said, mm-hmm. like it's probably the same way that guys have done this, minus the Garmin collars. <laughs> Fewer lost dogs now, or the fancy uh, socks and boots. Yeah, okay. So there's there's a few differences. Uh, it's exactly the same, only totally different. Yeah, right? exactly. We had a red dot. <laughs> well, it's a different platform, but I mean, even something like the 4570 government, the cartridge that will not die. Mm-hmm. It's you know, in the states like Pennsylvania or Iowa that require a straight wall cartridge there. That cart that that round is alive and well still. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about how well the rifles have held up, but you've got a, a shotgun here, and I'm I'm kind of curious. Uh, you know, that was super popular because of the versatility of a shotgun. Absolutely. Then, you know, it's kind of like the family shotgun. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, that was used during the Great Depression and how it's changed? I'm kind of curious to hear how, how those have evolved because sure. I think of I told you before I came I should have brought it in, but I have I have one that was my grandfather's. Um, not a gun I would take out today, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear your take on it as the historian here, Logan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, shotguns, smooth bores in general have always been incredibly popular, uh, you know, in, in this country and in the colonies, you know, beforehand. Because uh, if you've got something with a big, smooth bore, you know, that lends to a big round ball or shot, you know, it makes it a very versatile gun, you know. So if you're talking in the 1700s, if you only have money to have one flintlock gun, probably going to be a smooth bore gun you know may not be a dedicated shotgun but you can certainly use it that way um and and it you know of course as we evolve and and rifles become more popular then you get purpose-built shotguns and and so by the time you know the depression era comes along i mean guys are guys are and have been hunting with shotguns you know as a tried and true method for decades um and they've been you know using uh a lot of break action shotguns, single shot shotguns. Um, but John Moses Browning, you know, God bless him. God, God bless St. Browning. You know, he, he revolutionizes the shotgun world when he comes out with 
auto five. Oops, excuse me. Got to watch the grenades. I got to dodge <laughs> the grenades and the bears, you know. But he comes out with the auto five shotgun. It is the first semi-auto shotgun that you have on the market. It's got that iconic humpback frame there. Um, you know, interesting story as to how this gun even comes to market. The the TLDR version is that he offers the design to Winchester, uh, but he wants royalties now for the first time ever instead of a flat fee. Uh, and Winchester's president, Bennett, balks at it, says no way, you know, hit the road. And so after 20-some years, they part ways. And Browning says, well, I'm going to take it to Remington. And he's waiting in the lobby to have a meeting with Remington's president. And they get a phone call that Remington's president has died of a heart attack at home on lunch that day. So Browning's like, shit. Uh, and so, but thankfully, he's got, you know, high friends overseas. And so he takes it over to FN in Belgium. And they start making the Auto 5. And then in a funny twist of fate, they end up licensing the design in the States back to Remington. Uh, and Remington ends up making a, their version uh, of the Auto 5 eventually. But I mean, but this, the Auto 5 is a quintessential shotgun it's you know today's world of semi-auto shotguns i mean they don't exist without this right. gun mm -hmm. you know i mean there's no more iconic and what year are we talking about so the the auto 5 comes out in, in 1905 okay. so already a well-established yep. design you know by the time the depression comes around you know yeah folks don't have a whole lot of money you know in the depression era but you know they very easily could have bought this gun, you know, 20 years before. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a cherished gun, you know, that, that is a do-all in 12-gauge. And know. did he get his royalties through the licensing deal? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Browning made yeah. his money. Yeah. Through the yeah. I didn't know if it extended through the licensing. That's yep. great. Browning well, definitely made his money. And certainly being a semi-auto, this would be on a higher end of the price spectrum for shotguns. But, I mean, shotguns right. in general were very inexpensive. You know, you're not rifling a barrel, um, especially when you're in the break-apart or single-shot era. So, Every home in the you know the Depression era, especially through that South and that Dust Bowl era, I mean, they would have had a shotgun because they could have picked one up real inexpensively at the local hardware store, and yep. you know it would have been like you said the do all. Yep, absolutely. And and there's different levels of collectability now in the Auto Five shotguns. Um, you know the the true Belgian made ones mm -hmm. uh, have more value than the ones that are made more recently that are, are being made offshore. Um, and of course, there's now the new a5 shotguns which are an auto 5 in name only mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and and you know made in a variety of different calibers yep. and that's one of the interesting things that we've Absolutely. seen the trends with on gunbroker.com is what calibers or what well, gauges yep. sorry for shotguns gauges yep. uh what gauges are drawing a bigger price point um and it's maybe it's not what you might think, right? It, 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 it's a little surprising when you first see it, but it does make sense. You know, when we first started pulling data on, on the original Auto 5s, there's just so many. Mm -hmm. you know, there's so many variations, so many, you know, because they were built for, what, 50-some years probably before More than they that, yeah. started to come offline. Um, so the prices range all over the place just based on, you know, collector's grade condition, blah, blah, blah. But predominantly... The trend that just doesn't go away is our the highest selling ones are all in 16 gauge yep. or all the sweet 16 A5s. Yep. Um, 16s made a kind of a little bit of a resurgence over the last oh decade maybe. Yeah. Um, you know those who shoot it love it. I mean, as far as a bird gun goes, it's that perfect spot. You know, you still got enough shot and oomph to take down up to pheasant, but it's not quite as punishing as the 12 gauge can be. But uh, yeah, that's that is the constant. The the, the most valuable 
A5s we see move on gunbroker.com are, are 16 gauge. But is that, is that because there was just fewer of them made? Like, is it a supply and demand? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cer- certainly the 16 didn't come close to the 12 gauge numbers. I mean, the 12 gauges were made Right. By they're the easier to find. So. Yeah. That, they were still pretty, pr- they weren't really rare. They're still pretty prominent. The, the 16 was a really um, a popular cartridge back in that era. Again, it was less expensive than the 12. Um, still got the job done. Um, you know, you might not have had some of the, the categories if you're looking at slugs and buckshot as much, but mm-hmm. uh, especially if you were, uh, you know, the, the kids in the household, the 16 is a great choice for that. So they're a little more uncommon than the 12, but I still wouldn't call them rare. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of great stuff. You know, you had mentioned, just to backtrack a little bit, you'd talked about, you know, Jack O'Connor, you mm-hmm. know, and of course you, you, the Winchester Model 70, and we got one of those sitting here. And this comes out in 1936. Um, so it comes out during the depression, during, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which, which is, uh, you know, an interesting time period to introduce something that goes on to be known as the rifleman's rifle. I mean, it's, it's an iconic gun and those are very collectible, available in all sorts of different calibers yep. and barrel lengths. Um, this one particular one was made in the fifties. It's in 30 out six. Um, and, and you see a lot of model seventies yeah. on gunbroker.com. Yeah. I just looked this morning. There's 2,200 listings for model seventies right now. Um, certainly the ones that are, are drawing the most attention and have the hottest auctions are the pre-1964s. Yep. Uh, you always hear the term pre-64, and those yep. those are the ones that draw the big money. Uh, I think I took a quick look at just the this last year's sales, and we had a, a super-grade pre-64 go for 11000 Now, engraved, very, very tricked out, not, not kind of your base model, but... Uh, the bidding can be really fierce mm-hmm. among the collectors in the Model 70 because it's got a really big following. And, yep. you know, there's the, as you said, it was the Rifleman's Rifle. It was kind of the, the benchmark for all. I mean, you know, we have an episode on the civilian firearms that became military grade. You're looking at the original Army sniper rifle. Mm-hmm. This uh, became the M40? M- no, M24, M24 in Vietnam. The Remington was the M40. But when they could not stand up sniper battalions in, um, in the Vietnam era with military-issued firearms, they literally went down to the sporting goods store and bought Model 70s, accurized them a little bit, put a good scope on it, and that then became the the firearm for the sniper corps. So l- this rifle really is the do-all. Yep. You know, I'm looking at this thing, and I'm thinking, okay, the 30-06 that I hunt with is polymer, or, you know, like, it's, it is um, – Synthetic. Compos- synthetic yep. stock. It's not exciting. Not it doesn't have this style and look and touch and feel. And so passing that to my children – I am instantly looking at these guns and thinking, I've got to down, you, downgrade you the your technology game. <laughs> so that I can have like a nice heirloom quality right. firearm to pass on to my children because that thing is, you know, camo stock. Just Right. Uh, it works. It does what I need it to do. Sure. But it is not the the heirloom that I would like to yeah, pass down. It's not a nice piece of walnut with hand checkering. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I do know a place there where you can probably find some online to buy some new stocks and, and upgrade your gun. We'll, we'll talk oh, after we get okay. <laughs> If only there was an online platform where I could buy all things gun related, you know, and, and speaking of all things, you know, gun related gun broker, you know, doesn't sell just rifles and ammo and shotguns and stuff. You guys sell some interesting things too. And so let's let's talk about some of the more interesting things that have closed sure. on gunbroker.com in the past week. I like to tell people don't let the name fool you. You know, yes, yes gunbroker, but you know, we're we got your archery needs. Uh, we've got fishing needs. We've got your optics. We got your knives. We got about anything you need. But uh, yesterday, when I was c- taking a look at the the sales report to see what had you know gone off the day before, one thing stood out to even me being a little unusual. Um, for a mere twenty seven thousand, you know, pocket change for some folks, uh, we sold a uh, World War II era M two flamethrower kit. 
but it came with the M27 service package. So it's it's really a value if you think about it. Oh, absolutely. So for all yeah. your flamethrower needs, gunbroker.com. Yeah. I know we only have, uh, did you get through your list? Yeah. Okay. I, I have <laughs> I have one thing I have to ask about. Um, you know, trapping was huge in the Depression era. Um, you know, I think I was doing, I wanted to see the numbers cause I don't know these off the top of my head. I'm not a historian like Logan, but I was kind of curious on like, what's a wage back then. And, you know, you were looking at a uh, dollar to three fifty a day. Maybe some of these guys are maybe putting together 25 a week, mm-hmm. but trappers were getting 20 a pelt for like an mm-hmm. otter. And so with trapping in the depression, you know, what, what firearm are they kind of using, uh, in that case to, you know, they come up on something, they've got it live. Like if you, if you're, if you get a coyote pelt or something, what would have right. been the gun that they're kind of leaning on? You know, that's a great question. And I think it's, uh, the answer to that is whatever they had, whatever, you know, they whatever's, had. whatever's closest at hand, yep. yeah. you know, um, it could, could have been a, a 94, yeah. you know, it could, or it could have been a little 22 or it. You know, it, it just really depends, yeah. you know, especially if we're talking in, in that era where you're you're sub- trying to subsist on this stuff. You know, you're not going out and buying a new gun, yep, you know, right. so it, it's whatever you have on hand, whatever's been tried and true in the past. Yeah. You know, there was no, uh, you know, like we've got guns now that, you know, have Trapper in the model yeah. name, you know, yeah. like, Trapper's gun was whatever he had at yeah. that point, you know. Yeah, we, we really, didn't. you're probably going to you're gonna choose whatever's going to do the least amount of damage right. to the pelt. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, if, you, if at home you've got a 12-gauge, you've got a, a 30 out 6 and you've got a 22, you're probably taking the 22 because you don't want to damage the meat that's going to feed you and you don't want to damage the pelt that's going to, you know, bring you in some cash. But really, at the end of the day, if you've got a 12-gauge and that's all you got, you'll learn how to do it without damaging <laughs> Place the pelt. It well. yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And we didn't even really get into – we'll have to do another episode like this talking about Depression-era mm-hmm. uh, subsistency because we didn't get into archery, the primitive tools, all the, all the, the other methods that people yeah. use to kind oh, yeah. of survive. I know we're kind of coming up at time here, but – Logan, awesome to get this dump on uh, this brain dump from from all the history that again we just kind of skimmed the surface of. Yeah, yeah, and you know, like like Alan said, don't let the gun broker name fool you. You know, if you're looking for the more primitive stuff, you know, the archery, and you can find bows and arrows. And just shopping for a traditional bow on there the other day, and were you so, really a lot of bear trad bows on there right now. So uh, okay, so I was shopping on Go Wild looking at bows <laughs> the other day. You know? Speaking of Go Wild, kind of a sign off here. Make sure you guys are logging time, and you can log a podcast on on the app so download gowild.com find it in your app store you'll find all of us on there you can tag us let us know what you think of this you'll get some rewards we got some cool stuff coming out with gunbroker.com in terms of rewards so make sure you log in these shows go to post log time outdoor podcast and you can find the no low ballers podcast right there yeah Very absolutely good. Great plug. See, that's why that's why Brad's the man. He's the professional. <laughs> yeah, does Brad's. The, I'm just the host. Brad's the professional. Nah, I got it. Like you know, you can tell who's the boss in the room because he's got the biggest Garmin watch out of all of us. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's no, that's I don't even have one. You know, no, mine's hey, at I home. Know a place you can get one. Oh, you do. We'll really? You oh man. Oh yeah. So well, that's great. I'm sitting in a room where I can find a place to get a Garmin watch, and I can find a place to buy a Model 70. It doesn't get any better. Almost right? as if it were planned. You'd think. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be wrong. (laughs) Awesome. Well, guys, thanks for joining us here uh, on this episode. And thanks to all of you for tuning in uh, and joining us on on this adventure to talk about Depression-era hunting and and guns. Um, Appreciate you being here. Hope you learned something. If you didn't, try again next week. We'll be back. Um, So thanks for tuning in to this episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. We'll see you next time.